0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Tom Gilovich has spent a lot of his career thinking about what makes some people wise and other people not so much. He's a professor of psychology at Cornell University, and several years ago, he was asked by an insurance company to do a study with a pretty simple question.
1: Could you save 20% of your income at this point in your life? These are all people doing pretty well, making over $75,000 a year at that time. This was probably 15 years ago. And a lot of people thought they couldn't do that because by getting you to think about can you save 20% of your income, you've got to think, what am I going to give up now? What am I losing in order to do that? And a lot of people said, well, I'm
0: not sure I could do that. Think about whether you could do that. Could you give up 20% of what you make? Not everyone in the study, though, was asked the same simple question. Some of them were asked something just a little bit different.
1: Another set of respondents were asked, could you live on 80% of your income? Now, of course, if you're saving 20%, you're living on 80%. But that focuses a keyhole on something very different. What are the things that I truly need right now, not what are the things I'm uh, giving
0: up? And a much, much higher percentage of people said, yeah, I could do that. Same question, essentially, but with a change in emphasis and completely different answers. As Gilovich did his research and he started piecing together the last few decades of other people's work on wisdom, and I'm not talking about IQ scores here or test scores, so not intelligence, wisdom began to seem to him like the ability to see a problem in multiple ways and to pick the approach that most benefits you and others. So here's another example of making a wise choice. Say you've saved up a pile of money to take a vacation and you've got two options in terms of how to spend the money. You can take a pretty nice vacation that lasts 10 days, or you can take a six-day vacation that's more luxurious. What do you do?
1: If you face this dilemma, gee, a longer vacation would be good, but I don't have enough money to have that long vacation and have a place to stay right on the beach, uh, etc. But I could do that with uh, a shorter trip. The research literature is very clear on this. Take the shorter trip, make sure you do something nice on the last day.
0: But wisdom goes beyond tips and tricks. Gilovich was interested in what gave some people a sense of how to deal with particularly consequential decisions. In a book that he co-authored, The Wisest One in the Room, Gilovich starts off with a story of General Dwight Eisenhower. It's 1944. Just before the Normandy landings, and Eisenhower is going around a room of troops, shaking people's hands, and silently connecting to each person. I ask Gilovich why what Eisenhower did has been viewed by history as wise as opposed to smart.
1: Eisenhower and General Montgomery, who led the British forces, had a complicated relationship, might be described as a rivalrous relationship, and Eisenhower had given Montgomery the honor, the privilege of briefing the officers about what the invasion was going to entail. And apparently he did it brilliantly. Montgomery was a smart person with a real command of the operation. And so you could imagine a someone who wasn't wise trying to meet Montgomery step for step. And instead of trying to do that, instead of trying to outdo him, he did something very different. He attended to the human needs of the officers and said, "I just want one thing. I want to add. I just want to walk around the room and shake the hands of all of these brave men who are uh, about to lead tomorrow's invasion."
0: And you say there are a series of politicians who are actually very good at being the wisest person in the room and understanding, you know, how you work the room, even though there's a diversity of viewpoints. Um, and someone like. Franklin Roosevelt, uh, again, maybe not the person with the highest IQ, but great at understanding like how you negotiate those different politics and those different viewpoints.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the question really gets at, again, uh, this enduring question of exactly what wisdom is. Again, it's not intelligence. We stake the claim that you can't really be considered wise unless you're wise about people, and, and Roosevelt certainly was. Being intelligent about other people is a key component of wisdom. Being oriented toward the practical implications of one's actions is also a component of wisdom. And thinking of the long term is a component of wisdom. And so we end the book with the discussion of the extraordinary actions that uh, Nelson Mandela took to guide South Africa's independence, uh, something that was really quite tenuous. The Afrikaners, uh, this was not a welcome development for them. A number of white resistance parties developed. Uh, At one time, it looked very possible uh, that there would be uh, a very violent civil war, and it was his actions very much oriented toward the long term that steered that country uh, away from civil war. And when we see, it's the same kind of thing we see celebrated now in the hugely popular play Hamilton of the celebration. Um, I'm going to show them how to say goodbye. Washington not hanging on to power Recognizing that for the, although that might have been good for the United States in the short term, for the long term, setting this precedent of no, you serve for a certain period of time and then you walk away, that's looking toward the long term, certainly been healthy for this country. And we see time and time again where initially well meaning politicians, so let's say a colony overthrows colonial rule, someone comes in seems like just the right leader for the time, and they just can't give up power because the current situation seems like, hey, if I just stick around a little longer, we'll be able to get past this. But then by the very nature of hanging on, they're setting a bad long-term precedent.
0: So uh, let's step back for a minute from the political stage and go back to some of those uh, kind of individual-wise strategies that we were talking about before along the lines of like vacationing or saving money. One of the pieces of research that most surprised me is that wise people know we all like to be engaged in something more than we like to relax. Uh, And I think what's really interesting about that is that a lot of people think, boy, if I could just go on vacation, like if I could just quit my job, I would be so much happier and life would be so much easier. But in fact, people are happier if they're not kicking back all the time.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the reasons it's, it's easy in a way to get confused about happiness is because it's confusing. That is to say, uh, when we talk about happiness, we're really talking about two different things. What are our individual moments like? And when you think about kicking back, you might think, oh, that's an easy moment. That's a pleasurable moment, and that's true. You string together lots of those kicking back pleasurable moments, however, and then you put it from the perspective of the second component of happiness, which is the evaluative self, that you look back and say, what has my life been about? You look back on those moments, you go, hey, I didn't really do anything. Um, and so when we say we're we're happy, it's really two things. One is our moment-to-moment experience, and the other is the statements that we say to ourselves about what we've just experienced, the meaning of our life, and so on. And it turns out when you're striving for things, you're totally engaged, and that engagement is pleasurable, so you take care of the moment-to-moment part, although sometimes that moment-to-moment engagement, like mountain climbing, for example, is actually miserable. But when you look back, hey, I've I've summited that right. mountain, and you have a, a sense of satisfaction that's incredibly gratifying. And so it's easy to get confused because it's easy to mix up those two different components of what we call happiness.
0: Now that you've spent a really long time thinking about wisdom, looking at all the research, doing a lot of it yourself, is there anything when you think back that you think, this was a moment when I wish I had been a lot more wise? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it really goes back to the very last question you raised about moment-to-moment pursuit of pleasure versus uh, striving for things. And uh, when I look back on my life and think, well, wait a minute, I, I spent all those years sort of playing wiffle ball on the beach. That was fun. <laughs> but uh, And maybe it developed some motor skills that are useful. But, boy, I'd really like to be able to play a musical instrument now. Why did I not spend any time in the childhood doing that or... Why is the only foreign language I can, quote, speak uh, is Latin? Why did I do that rather than learn a living language? Looking back, I wish I had known how powerful this idea of we're we're happiest when we're pursuing things was, and I would have spent a little less idle time earlier in life. I'm sure that's a pretty common regret of a lot of folks.
0: (laughs) Tom Gilovich is the co-author of The Wisest One in the Room, how you can benefit from social psychology's most powerful insights. He's also a professor of psychology at Cornell. Tom, thank you so much. This is great.
1: Thank you, Kara.